Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 14, Plucky Penny Whistle's Magic Menagerie. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, so first off, we really want to say a huge, big, mega thank you to everybody who participated in Baking for the Archives in any way, shape, or form, whether you watched, whether you donated, if you promoted, if you talked to your friends, like anything at all. It honestly, it meant so much to us. Thank you so, so much. Seriously, thank you all so much. Just a huge shout out to everyone. But specifically this week, a shout out to JessCamp06, and Meryl May for the lovely reviews they left on Apple Podcast. Once again, we we appreciate the support so much. It means so much to us and it helps us a ton. And we have officially run out of people to shout out for their Apple Podcast reviews. So if you want to receive a shout out and make our hearts flutter, go and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and we will uh, shout you out after the holiday break. Have you started putting on the Christmas music in the house yet? Oh yeah, absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> I feel like I know it's not our subject for like the anything coming up, but like how early do you like turn to like, I know you have quite the collection of records of like Christmas music. So it depends. Uh, usually we start listening to Christmas music at home whenever we set up the Christmas tree. And so this year that was uh, the last weekend of November. So that's pretty much when we started listening to Christmas music that's a logical time frame for like Christmas spirit. Like I've never been one of those like, Oh, November 1st is too soon. But November 1st is a little soon. <laughs> I'll judge you a little bit, but never outwardly like exclaim like bah humbug Christmas people. So to come back to the episode that we are going to talk about today, I actually prepped both the last episode and this episode on the same day. And it was oh, honestly, no. yeah, like it was really quite the tonal shift, like to finish the Slice Girls and then to move on to this one. And then it got me thinking about the fact that like, the, it was such an unhinged choice to have these episodes one after the other. Like, <laughs> I loved this episode. For so many reasons, which we will dive into throughout our conversations about it. Second, I think that is kind of the curse of mid-season bottle episodes. Because not to dwell on last week's less-than-loved episode, it is effectively a bottle episode. Yes, there's like the throwaway vagueness with Amy, but like really it's its own standalone thing. And this episode, again, while it relates to past information we have, such as Sam's Fear of Clowns, it is fairly a standalone bottle episode. It doesn't really touch the Leviathans or the major plots. While it does, in this case, give us at least some positive growth for both characters, I would say. Um, but all that to say, when you have, like, I guess your, like, map of the season up on the big wall in the office, and you're like, okay, cool, we have, like, X episodes to fill here. Uh, let's get one, two, three, four, four bottle episodes, break them up and go. They don't need to, like, blend well together. They just need to be bottle episodes. So, um, this can happen. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it did happen. That's for sure. Because we have the result right in front of our faces, right? So how about you get us uh, a recap of the episode so that we can get into it together? 
All right, three, two, one, unicorn. I thought you were going to say Hong. I was so ready for that one. <laughs> we have death by crazy squid monster and then kid drawing it. We have death by impalement via unicorn, which also farts rainbows as it runs away. And the whole time, Sam and Dean are trying to figure out what this could be. They're spitballing some ideas. And finally, they narrow it down to potentially this one location, which turns out to be their rip-off clown version of a Chuck E. Cheese that seems to be where Sam's fear of clowns sprung from because of being dumped there by Dean when he was young. We then find out that it's actually some sort of thing using children's fears to kill their parents because they were, quote-unquote, bad parents when really, I mean, they were just shitty, really. They weren't bad. They were just shitty, uh, for what we know. Sam has to face clowns, literally two of them in a great fight. One of the greatest fight scenes the show's ever given us. Dean has a really surprisingly dark and heart-to-heart moment with a person and d- saves the day. That's really it. We just had a great growing moment at the end, too, with Sam and Dean. Time. I also just, like, I feel like we need to bring it up if it doesn't come up naturally. But the um, alternative uh, opening sequence we received this week, right after the cold open... Of the clowns, which also, I don't know why this episode, like, I'm trying to figure out there was a reason for it. But instead of doing the usual, like, then and now, it's like a weird countdown timer, like 24 for some reason. Where it's like, so many minutes until the event. (laughs) And then even ends with, like, literally right now or something. Like, the time card they use when they cut back to Sam fighting the clowns. Like, no, it's it's right friggin' now. (laughs) That's what it is. This is a case of, like, they understood the assignment of, like, yes, this is a bit of a silly one. Let's be silly. And, like, mwah, chef's kiss for being silly. I love it. So this episode was written by Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin, directed by Mike Roll, and it originally aired on February 10th, 2012. I feel like I give Dabb and Laughlin so much shit almost every time. But then, like, once in a blue moon, their names get attached to an episode that I'm, like, completely shocked by because it was so good. Their episodes are often very good, to be honest. I think they're one of those people I need to, like, do, like, a, a quick, like, double check of their episodes at some point and be like, why do I why do I equate them with bad? And, like, suddenly they have been k- killing it. It's not suddenly. Like, they have been doing really good episodes. Yeah, but I we think have- it's, like, three or four in a row now I've, I've loved. All right, so if we move into the long game, we bring back Sam's deep-seated fear of clowns, which we'd been introduced to in season two, Everybody Loves a Clown. Uh, This is our first, and yes, I do mean first, hint to tentacle porn. Well, given that the season's already had two references to hentai, I'm not shocked by this anymore. Do you also remember when we talked about unicorns? Yes, there was literally watching that scene, the guy running and like, Right away, I'm like, he's going to jump at the wall. And I'm like, oh my God, he's going to get impaled by a unicorn. We're getting the unicorn. I'm so excited. It's a killer unicorn. <laughs> it was a killer unicorn. There you go. Uh, we also uh, see Dean laugh in a way that we basically haven't really seen him laugh since season four, Free to Be You and Me. Yeah, the the end of this episode is so magical to me. (laughs) Mm, It's really beautiful. I really do like it. And uh, we also get some insights into younger Dean and Sam, and we will be talking about this in literally just a second. This week, our theme is neglect. It has a Latin root that literally translates to 
to not choose or to not pick up. And again, like I really find that learning the etymology of words has been so incredibly illuminating for our theme discussions personally, because like, what a way to describe neglect. Like when you neglect something, you put it aside, you don't choose it, you don't make it a priority. And like, despite how upbeat and funny this episode is on the surface, like I think it also tells us a lot about Sam and Dean and neglect, particularly in their childhood. Yeah, it's kind of funny how like my notes for this episode kind of warped from like talking about Sam and Dean and like neglect and then realizing, oh, this is just shitting on John, the episode. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, this is our favorite pastime, really. I know. This is so much fun. <laughs> That's why we get a fun episode. We get a bunch of funny one-offs. It's like a great growing moment at the end for the two of them. And we get to crap all over John. What more can I ask for in an episode? Cast, but that's beside the point. It's a great day. It's a great day. It's a great day. All right. So if we start with Dean, uh, in this episode, we find out that when John would leave the boys to their own devices, Dean would, in Sam's words, of course, dump him at Plucky's and go trolling for chicks. And I kind of want to think about what that would look like practically, because Dean would have been old enough to go trolling for chicks. And Sam would have had to be young enough not to be left alone. And they have about a four-year age difference, right? So I'm thinking we're talking about Sam being anywhere between 10 and 12 and Dean being between 14 and 16. Let's also keep in mind that like in the Winchester family, in the way that John was heading that family, it's okay to leave a 13-year-old with a 9-year-old on Christmas Eve. So, like, I don't think that Dean would have felt the need to have Sam, like, babysat or watched past age 12. Yeah, if it weren't for, like, the Dean-Sam age gap here, I would not be shocked if a 5-year-old Sam was being, like, stuck with a creepy clown all week by a younger Dean or even a John at any age, really. And now I'm picturing college-age Sam being left at Plucky's by John and the best image ever. Um, I digress. I don't believe that, like, Dean at that age was getting any action and was more trying to, like, sound cool to his brother. So I just want to get that, like, kind of out of the way. What I really want to focus on here is that, like, I think it's a bit unfair to call this neglect intentional. Like, I think we're on the same page here, but, like, even at that age of, like, 16, I'd argue... While it was neglectful, it was not Dean's responsibility. It was Dean trying to live a life and act like a kid that he was. And at least was like doing something for Sam versus, you know, leaving him alone with his brother with no food on Christmas in a motel. What Sam went through is textbook neglect. Like, and and what Dean went through is textbook neglect, all of it. And the fact that John would leave his two sons by themselves, the fact that he expected the older one to raise the younger one, the fact that he wasn't there to make sure that they were happy and healthy and developing properly, all of that is neglect. Like, and that is kind of not really, like, I don't really see how that would be arguable. Notice that, like, I'm not saying that Dean leaving Sam at Plucky's is neglect because it was never his responsibility to begin with to raise his brother. I blame John for this. There's one thing that I do want to mention about Dean, and it's him, like, dealing with the neglect that he was subjected to, like, by basically reparenting himself. Like, this is something that we've seen him do pretty consistently over the seasons, and I feel like this week we saw saw him trying to do that with himself, like, to 
to get himself a slinky, which was probably one of those toys that he never got to have as a kid. And I think that it speaks to like the long-term effects of childhood neglect that people have to deal with as adults. Yeah, like, you know, he totally asked for one of those for Christmas, but instead John got him like oil for his gun or like a leather wrap for his knife handle. Honestly, probably something even shittier like lotto tickets, like just, just fuck John. Bold of you to assume they got Christmas gifts at all. Oh, you know what? Um, valid point. Oh, God, oh, I hate this so much. And mind you, this is just more evidence of the neglect Dean felt on top of the indirect neglect he feels remorse over with Sam. Like, again, like, Dean's most growing moment, the thing that I think is so worth examining here, is the fact that at the end of this episode, he sees the wrong that he did and doesn't try to make it like it's John's fault that, like, we got dealt this hand. He understands that, you know, while I did my best because I shouldn't have had to be your parent, dropping you off at one of these shitholes no, you know, now knowing what it did to you and the like neglect and harm it caused you, I'm sorry I did that to you. Like, Dean has a legitimate, growing, emotional, healthy moment. Yeah, he does. Uh, and it's really quite lovely in that moment to kind of see him realize that, like, his actions did have an effect on Sam. I did appreciate that. That was lovely. Out, out of all the out of all the John related garbage we're dealing with, a, a little lotus sprouts of Dean's growth and health. All right, so if we move on to Sam, uh, as I mentioned earlier, so we know that Sam has a long history of being afraid of clowns, like we saw it in season two, but we're told that it goes like way further back, also. And in this episode, we find out maybe that it comes from being dumped at Plucky's when he was younger. And so remember when I said that I don't blame Dean, I blame John for Sam's neglect. Well, like that still holds, right? But it doesn't change the fact that Sam did experience neglect too. I just find that sometimes I hear things like Sam had it easier or at least Sam had Dean. And like, yeah, sure, Sam had Dean. That's undeniable, right? You can't take that away from him. But having your brother who's only four years older than you as a caretaker, like, is not appropriate parenting to receive. Like, Dean did not have the emotional maturity at the time to be raising a child four years younger than him. And that really did leave Sam with neglect scars, basically. It's not, it's not, and again, reiterating that it's not Dean's fault, it's John's. Yeah, big deja vu here. John's neglect was clearly for both of them. At least he shared that evenly between them and agreed completely. The neglect is present and much like we see with Dean in his lack of a childhood, Sam wanted to be included more and not be treated as the baby and then finds himself stuck in clown trauma land. And while Dean may have made the choice, it, it really, like you said, it's, it's John's neglect. It's essentially, it's like, it's like the generational trauma. It's generational neglect. Like, Sam is being neglected by Dean because John's not being a parent and Dean isn't a parent. What I want to stress here is that just because Sam had Dean doesn't mean that he was less neglected necessarily in terms of parenting per se. Like they were both neglected. They both had very difficult, traumatic and like downright horrible childhoods and lives for the most part. And that all stems from John just because Sam had someone looking out for him 
more so than Dean did doesn't mean Sam suffered any less. Because that's the thing. Like, I find that sometimes, like, the audience, the fans, like, and even myself included, like, we tend to neglect Sam's childhood trauma. Um, I was saying briefly about how, like, some folks tend to minimize his experience of childhood neglect because, like, at least he had Dean. But we also see that his, like, fear of clown and how so many of us, like, myself included, think that it's, like, the funniest thing in the world, right? Like, it's funny to see Jared Padalecki be scared of clowns. (laughs) But I imagine myself in a place covered in spiders and all of a sudden it's less funny and, and, like, a lot more terrifying. And I'm just like, (laughs) why is it that I think Sam's trauma is funny? And it has to do with the writing, obviously, but it's just, like... Why is it that Sam's fears are played for jokes so often? 100% agree with you. I think the we, we discussed it recently. I feel like a lot of this season, we've had this kind of like recurring dialogue regarding Sam not being as present or not being as well written. And I think it has to do with the fact that one, the writers understand Dean more. And also this, I, it might be a stretch, but it's a personal one, is... I feel like Dean is written in a way where a lot of his trauma is worn on his sleeve. It's a lot more surface level, not to like undervalue it. It's still trauma. It's still his pain, but like his drinking is a lot more visible. His anger is a lot more visible. Sam, I feel like is a little bit more like holding things in and is also, like I said, the writing doesn't seem to give him the same breathing room they do Dean. So I think it's also harder to connect with him as a character for some people because of this. So a lot of things get underplayed or feel like they're being done for a laugh. And I just want to bring up your second point, the room full of spiders. I would die. I, fuck spiders. Uh, like right now it is, it is John, spiders, other things. There's one last thing that I want to mention when it comes to Sam, and it's like the use of red light in the motel room again that becomes like more and more prominent when he realizes that he's going to have to go back to Plucky's. And we've talked about these moments of seeing Sam with red lighting in the background this season, like as reminders of the hell that like lives in his head at the moment, right? Constantly, like the reminders of the cage and Lucifer. And we've seen that like in difficult conversations with Dean, like also in moments where like Sam's consent was being violated. And now we're seeing it when it comes to clowns. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that his fear of of clowns is is very real, like so real that it probably showed up in the cage with Lucifer. And that's kind of what I, why I'm saying, like, I don't know that this is really funny. Loving the use of like that red motif that we keep seeing come up again. What was up with that weird ass Tiki Island style room? Like what, were they in a theme hotel for some reason? They're always in a theme hotel though. I, I feel like most motels and hotels they stay in like, the theme is shitty motel. This one felt like the, they were meant to be wearing like lays and like hula skirts the whole time. It was like weird. Okay, I'm going to give you homework from now on. You are going to have to notice the theme of the motels because I swear that so many of them have had themes before. This is something I'm going to start tracking now because like I, I'm going to start doing some Googling later. I'm very intrigued. Yep, absolutely. You should definitely do that. <laughs> I found the room very jarring, and Sam is very not 
confused or weirded out by it, because apparently this is something he's used to, but that he's in a place that to me looks so strange and seems okay until the conversation of going to Plucky's comes up, which suddenly makes him uneasy. That, like, being somewhere that looks odd isn't uneasy, but going to a place that has, like, a deep-seated root in him, that's the issue. But the other side is I like just that it could be a visual metaphor for, like, how confused Sam is finding himself descending into this, like, realization that he's going to have to go face his fears in a way. So, like, being in a place that's a little bit less than normal, as I saw it at least, kind of worked for that moment. It's a really good way to explain this interesting choice, because usually any theme that happens in a motel, like, we have a link to whatever is happening. But here I agree that I, I also wondered, I was like, why... Why did they choose this? So like, I yeah, there you go. I love I love this. It works for me. Step right up, step right up, hit the clown, win a prize. Yeah, kid, it's easy. For one shiny nickel, you get three tosses. All you gotta do is hit the clown. If he falls, you get any prize you want. Thank you, and here you go, whenever you're ready. Ooh, so close. You got this. Ooh, you nearly got him that time. Ah, shucks, another miss. Well, that's a shame, kiddo. Poor clown just sitting there, minding his own business. Bet he didn't like having those balls thrown at him. Like I said, you were close, but not quite close enough. Imagine just minding your own business, trying to bring a little joy to folks, and having some kid nearly knock you out. Well, I wouldn't be too happy about that now either. And I'm a pretty forgiving guy. Can't say the same for him. Hope he ain't in too bad a mood about it. But if I were you, I might double check your locks tonight. And make sure those windows are closed up real good. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about Dean's interaction with Tyler, who is like the little boy that we see throughout the episode, whose mom works at Plucky's. Uh, so to kind of paint a picture, Tyler's mom gives him a slice of pizza. Tyler says that it tastes like butt, and she tells him to just eat it. And this is when Dean starts talking to him and telling him, like, to cut her some slack and that he's been where Tyler is. And, like, even though technically it's Sam that's been left at Plucky's and not Dean, Dean is still able to recognize that, like, what's happening is a form of neglect. And he tries to cheer Tyler up with stuff like, oh, free grub, and it's not that bad, which, like, are similar arguments that he, like, gave to Sam earlier in the episode, you know, where he's like, oh, it's not like I left you in jail. I mean, those places are supposed to be fun, you know? And, like, the jail comment, like, we'll have to come back to at a later episode, but is he hinting that John maybe let him stay in jail longer than he should have? But we'll come back to that. So at the end of the episode, Dean does apologize to Sam by saying that, like, ditching him at Plucky's when they were kids was a dick move. And 
again, like I want us to remember that this is John's fault, not Dean's, uh, and that teenagers should not be responsible for their preteen siblings, um, but that the repercussions for Sam are very real, like so real that they haunt him to this day and that they might have been used against him as torture in the cage. I love bringing up Tyler here. Um, I realized in story time we kind of uh, jumped that point because it does something really interesting for Dean, which is we get to kind of see both sides of Dean dealing with neglect. Uh, one, the seeing himself in Tyler and trying to connect and like get him through this. But then also the, hey, your parental figure is in a really shitty place and is doing all of this for you. Give them some slack. Which I feel like is so interesting because I feel like if... Like... If the situation was, like, very much, t- t- like, one-to-one, him and John, he would not be saying that. But it's something he still learned. Because, I, I don't know. I just, I found it so interesting, um, genuinely. And again, I, I just want to keep reiterating the point how much I agree with you that, yes, this is all John's fault. But Dean's ability to still see his mistake and the damage that he has done, even if it's not the direct, like issue but it's a part of the problem he's able to apologize for it is like miles of improvement on Dean and I'm so proud of him This week we have a message from Ronnie and before we listen to it we want to remind you to send us a three minute voicemail to respond to anything we discussed today you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com We also want to remind you that Drew and I are going to be answering the question, what was your childhood fear for our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala Talk? Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Ronnie writes, hey guys, I'm Ronnie, any pronouns, and I've been following your show for a few months now. I just recently caught up with where you are, and as someone who's watched Supernatural too many times, I thought I could share something with you about the episode I identified with a lot. 519, Hammer of the Gods, specifically the introduction of Kali and Ganesha and Hinduism as a whole. I've been raised in a Hindu household, and while I don't believe, I participate for my family. I wanted to talk about Ganesha's birth, and the reason I think the use of Kali here is so interesting. There are a few stories for Ganesha's birth, but the story I like the most is the one I'm going to share with you. Ganesha's parents are Parvati, the goddess of the Himalayas, and Shiva, the god of destruction. One day, when Parvati was bathing, Shiva walked into the bathhouse without calling out for her or anything. And this scared her. She didn't like that anyone could just walk in when she was showering, so she created Ganesha out of turmeric paste, which she was using basically as soap from her own body. She created Ganesha to stand outside the front of the bathhouse while she showered. When she created him, he had a human face. The next day, when she was showering, Shiva came and tried to enter, but Ganesha didn't allow him. There was a fight that resulted in Ganesha dying by Shiva beheading him. Now, I don't think this is what the writers meant to do, but in Dean's heaven, when, as Sam put it, it's shown how long Dean has been cleaning up after John and Ganesha's birth. Anyways, Shiva, finding out how this affected Parvati, finding out Ganesha is his son, sent out his men to find the head of a child that was facing away from his mother. They couldn't find a human baby head, so they took an elephant's baby head. On the other hand, Kali, Kali is another form of Parvati, her vengeful side. 
Kali came out when she was faced with Asuras, which are just demons. She was so outraged that even after she had killed all the demons, she continued to dance a dance of death, killing more and more than just demons, killing anyone who got near her. So vengeful that she almost killed Shiva, her husband, and the god of destruction. That's why in a lot of pictures, she has demon hands as clothing, and is depicted to have to be standing on Shiva with one foot. It's interesting to me because 1. Kali only comes out when fighting demons are evil. 2. When Kali is fighting, it takes a lot to stop her. Anyways, thank you for doing what you do and holding the show to such a high standard. Whenever I do that with a show or a book series, my family gets annoyed pretty quickly. I look forward to any and all future episodes. Keep calm and carry on. Ronnie. Thank you so much, Ronnie, for sending us such a lovely message. Like, I, you know, this is one of those things that, like, you read, like, theoretically, or, like, you read, like, stories, like, written stories about Ganesha and, and, and Kali and, and Shiva. And it's, like, it's not the same as hearing it from somebody who has heard it their entire lives. And I just, I really want to thank you for taking the time to do that. Like I, it felt like a really privileged moment for me to hear that from you. And so just like a huge thank you for that. And like you said, I don't think that this was meant in any way, like as, as any message to, from the writers to the audience. But I think, I think what's interesting is that we can take something from from this. So like you're seeing similarities between some characters in the show and like others that are part of like the mythology of Hinduism. And so I, I find it really, really beautiful that even though that was never necessarily the intention, there's always meaning to be uncovered in, in this surprisingly deep text that is supernatural. So again, thank you so much for sending this to us. Yeah. To echo Mary here, Ronnie, thank you. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I love hearing stories from people who have these, you know, mythologies taught to them as they grow up or have interest in or connect to. And I love getting that firsthand perspective as someone else who grew up in a religious household, but is not very much practicing it's easy to connect with, but also I feel like it gives you a different perspective because you're not beholden to the mythology in a way that someone who's more devout might be. But so it makes it easier to use it as a form of reflection on other types of media. So again, to have that connection to using Kali uh, in this instance versus instead of Parvati, I mean, like Mary said, I don't think it was something they thought through that much. I could be wrong. But the fact that it does lead to these revelations and these connections, I think is what makes it so valuable to have that knowledge and to view this show from so many different perspectives. And again, as someone who runs a supernatural podcast and is also in many other fandoms that are very niche and would like to talk about them, but doesn't always have an audience to do that with, I am always here to listen to any and all theories from any fandom. It's fun. So again, thank you so much for this one. All right, Drew, do you have any reflection and call to action this week? The thing that really stuck with me, because I think it was said so often, was the if it bleeds, you can kill it line that uh, that Dean gives to Sam, which I feel like I'm sure is one of those things that's plastered across fandom t-shirts. But I want to take it a step further, and it's if anything can be scary, unicorns, 
that anything can be funny. And I remind myself to laugh at the dark and the horrible things sometimes to remind myself that I'm okay. I think. You know, it's really funny because like we are such different people because when I heard if it bleeds, you can kill it. It made me so sad because it sounded like younger Sam, like holding on to something to his big brother had told him. And it was like this moment of like this adult sized child, this giant sized child was like trying to remind himself not to be scared without his big brother. And so like, I see the sadness and you see the fun. And I think that that is why we work as a team. Oh, we're amazing. So what is your call to action reflection for this week? Well, in good Mary fashion, I am going to bum everybody out by talking about how this episode gets me thinking like about how often children aren't really considered fully human. Like, oh, they're kids. It doesn't really matter. They'll get over it. And like part of my academic work centers around reminding people that children should be treated with like full respect and dignity and humanity that they deserve. And like this episode reminds me of how important that work is because it seems that like a lot of folks just constantly forget that children are people. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our bunker supporters, L, Jeremiah Thomas, and Simone. This week, we'd like to thank Ronnie for the message. You can go to carryingwayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a coffee subscriber. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be taking a short two-week break from posting regular episodes for the holidays, and we've got some special episodes coming your way. We'll be back with 7.15, Repo Man, on January 12th, 2024. Carry on our wayward friends. The memory is vivid enough that looking back, while it didn't have big windows, there were still windows along, like, the top level of the place, so there was still, like, enough light to get up and walk out but I was alone in the dark and like kind of didn't know what to do and froze until someone came back from the lights looking for me.